Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. Viator is the world's leading travel experience marketplace, offering everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. Extensive options, ease of selection, and flexibility at your fingertips help make sure your time is wonderfully spent. Viator is the place to go to book experiences that will create long-lasting moments that make lifetime memories. And Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences to choose from in over 190 countries. In in fact, just last year, Viator helped my family put together this amazing adventure on the island of Kona. Swimming with the manta rays, trying to avoid the barracudas, whatever your wildest dreams. If you can imagine it, Viator probably has an experience just for you. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in Viator's world of wonderful experiences. Viator. One site, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised.
everybody. Welcome to Fruit Loops Season 3, Episode 17. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, white dudes. What? There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims. That's a media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. There we go. Allegedly. <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod discussion or joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. And if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash app, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. Don't get me started about my mother, but if you can't help monetarily, <laughs> no problem. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And this is the key thing. Be sure to share our show with your friends. And yeah. thank you to everybody who has done so, so far. Yes. Um, so who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. The Night Stalker. This is probably the most well-known serial killer we have covered so far. But how well do you really know Richard Ramirez? Let's find out. Oh, yes. Looking forward to it. Plus, also, <laughs> all the other podcasts never talk about the race part. Like, yeah, hello. It's like the <laughs> elephant in the room. Anyway, so how you doing? I'm doing good. I wanted to wish all of our listeners a happy Halloween. Oh, yeah. Because this is coming out on Halloween. And mm -hmm. we hope you all are having a spooky day. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I wanted to address something that we said in our last episode. It was brought to our attention this week that uh, we were hard on teachers last week. Mm. And for that, we are really, really sorry. Yes, lo siento, perdónanos. Yes, yes. I was speaking out of frustration because of how difficult it's been for my daughter and grandson. And my daughter has literally had to go to school with him and attend mm -hmm. class with him to teach his teachers about how to deal with his ADHD. Mm. But we know that there are excellent, caring teachers out there who are experts, and uh, we salute you. You Absolutely. don't get enough kudos or pay. Right. And we're really, really sorry if we were insulting to you and your profession. That was not my intention at all. Not one bit. Not one bit. Yeah. Yes. I have been personally beating myself up because we offended some of our beloved listeners and friends. Um, so welcome to Correction Corner with Wendy and Beth. <laughs> I, I also apologize profusely. I was also speaking from my experience, um, personal experience with my child and my frustration going through the education system with my son. And I absolutely didn't mean to offend any teachers. We love good teachers. I come we from do. a long line of educators and have the utmost respect um, and love for good, hardworking educators. So, so you guys, hang on a second. Let me get my hip hop air horn ready because all the teachers deserve 
All the teachers out there, yeah. All of the hip hop air horns. You really do, and I I could not do your job. You guys, oh, no. uh, you guys are saints. <laughs> yeah, no. Um, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I set out in my education when I went to college. I was like, I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to teach Spanish, and then I'm going to have a Glee club that I'm the leader of, just like Mr. Schuster on the Glee <laughs> show. And then I realized I really wasn't cut out for it. <laughs> yeah, maybe, yeah. Maybe it in really the next does life. take a special person to to be a teacher. So, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So we we saw we we saw we. We don't have any listener letters this week to keep the episode short, but um, you guys keep like responding to us and sending us lovely, lovely notes. So they will be back um, soon. But uh, in the yes. meantime, we're just going to take a quick break and get into the story when we come back. Hey, true crime listeners, check out our podcast, I Said Goddamn. We're a true crime comedy podcast hosted by two besties who like to share messed up cases that make you say goddamn. Every Sunday, we try to one-up each other's story by sharing a horrific case the other has never heard of. Along the way, we splash in some wildly inappropriate jokes and colorful language. Listen every Sunday from any of your favorite podcast directories. Also, follow us on Twitter at ISGDpodcast or visit our website, isgdpodcast.com. We're back. Beth, who are we talking about again? We're talking about Richard Ramirez, also known as the Night Stalker. Beginning in April of 1984, he went on a killing spree in California, mutilating and murdering at least 14 people. For over a year, Ramirez crept into houses in the middle of the night to rape and torture randomly selected victims. All right, let's get into it. So now we are going to dive into the stats portion of our show. Oh, wrong button. So Ricardo Levia Munoz Ramirez, a.k.a. Richard Ramirez, a.k.a. Ricky, a.k.a. The Night Stalker, a.k.a. The Midnight Stalker, a.k.a. The Valley Intruder, a.k.a. The Walk-In Killer. It's got quite a few a.k.a.s there. Quite a few a.k.a.s. Well, uh, because I, I don't know if the media knew what to do with an yeah. individual like this at the time. Yeah. So the, uh, hence the name changes. But he was a first generation Mexican-American serial killer who killed at least 14. Some say 18. He did eight rapes, uh, two attempted rapes, eight attempted murders and two kidnappings. His victims were males and females. Um, he was a pickpocket a car thief, a serial rapist, a necrophiliac, and a Satan worshiper. His crimes took place in L.A. from 1984 to August 1985. Uh, He also committed some crimes in Northern California. Uh, He was born in El Paso, Texas on February 29th, 1960, a leap year. And I wonder if that has something to do with how weird it is. Hmm. I don't know. Uh, His M.O. was all over the place. He shot, he stabbed, he bludgeoned, he raped, he strangled. He killed men, women, and children. Uh, And he tended to enter homes in the middle of the night, but not always. Uh, Sometimes he robbed people. Sometimes he didn't. Uh, Sometimes he raped people. Sometimes he didn't. 
So now yeah. we are going to dive into the setting. Splish splash. <laughs> the setting is Los Angeles in the mid 80s. And this was in the middle of what's since been called the satanic panic. Oh, boy. During the 1980s, the media started reporting allegations of satanic ritual abuse, which involved the physical and sexual abuse of people in occult or satanic rituals. Some allegations involved a conspiracy of a worldwide organization in which children were abducted or even bred for sacrifices, pornography, and prostitution. Okay. The initial publicity came from a book published in 1980 called Michelle Remembers. It was written by Lawrence Pazder, a psychiatrist. The book documents events through the therapy of his longtime patient, Michelle Smith. And Michelle's repressed memories, a field of psychology, which is controversial, and it documents satanic rituals that she believed that she was forced to attend. The book has since been discredited by several investigations who found no corroboration of the book's events. They found that the events described in the book were extremely unlikely and in some cases impossible. Pazdar and Smith later married, something which hmm. I find highly unethical on Pazdar's part. Yeah. So there's that. Mm -hmm. There's also the fact that a psychiatrist wrote a mainstream book about his patient's therapy, which I also think is pretty fucked up. Yeah, aren't there like HIPAA rules about that? I don't know. Christian fundamentalism and the literal belief in angels and devils was on the rise in the 80s. And at the time, heavy metal bands like Black Sabbath and Judas Priest were using satanic symbolism. And people believed that the lyrics in heavy metal music encouraged people to do bad things. But that's bullshit. In 1985, 20-year-old James Vance tried to sue Judas Priest when after a night of partying, he and his friend, 18-year-old Raymond Belknap, shot themselves. Belknap died, but Vance survived and blamed Judas Priest for what he claimed was subliminal messaging in their music. The suit was eventually dismissed. Huh. The role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons was becoming popular, too, and many parents didn't understand this game. All they knew was that it was different. There was role-playing involved and featured scary creatures, so obviously it was satanic. And I think that you find throughout history that older people don't like or understand what younger people do. Anything. So they criticize it. That the young yeah. Kids do. yeah. Yeah. And then they go to Congress and <laughs> yeah. And it's like, what the, like uh, do better society. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. Kids are all right. Yes, they are. <laughs> then there was the McMartin preschool trial in the early eighties during the implementation of mandatory reporting laws. There was an increase in child protection investigations in the U S and a heightened public awareness about child abuse. Which is good, but, and this is a big ass but, cases were led by social workers who unfortunately used leading and coercive interviewing techniques. And to this, a growing need for daycare as many families became two-income households and the fear for the safety of the children in this new arrangement grew. In 1983, a parent accused one of the staff members at the McMartin Preschool in Manhattan Beach, California of abuse. Very unqualified people were allowed to interview the children, and out of 400 children, the interviewers determined that 359 of them had been abused. Huh. Allegations included those of satanic ritual abuse. Shortly afterward, more than 100 preschools across the country became the object of similar sensationalist allegations, which were eagerly and uncritically reported by the press testimonials, symptoms lists, rumors, and techniques to investigate or uncover memories of satanic ritual abuse were disseminated through professional, popular, and religious conferences, as well as through the attention of talk shows, further spreading the moral panic throughout the United States and beyond. 
In some cases, allegations resulted in criminal trials. But after seven years in court, the McMartin trial resulted in no convictions for any of the accused, while other cases resulted in lengthy sentences, some of which were later reversed. Scholarly interest in the topic eventually resulted in the conclusion that the phenomenon was a moral panic not based in reality. Official investigators produced no evidence of widespread conspiracies and only a small number of verified crimes had even remote similarities to tales of satanic ritual abuse. So that's the setting. Everybody is fucking scared. (laughs) And uh, now we're going to get into the killer's early life. Richard Ramirez was born Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez on February 29th, 1960 in El Paso, Texas. He was the fifth and last child of Mexican immigrants. His father, Julian, and his mother, Mercedes, both worked long hours to support their five children. Richard was known by his family and friends as Richie or Ricky. As the child of an immigrant, work, 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 is the name of the game. Work, 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 work. Uh, El Paso is a border town and heavily Latinx. Shout out to you, Beto O'Rourke. Mercedes was a devout Catholic and worked at a boot factory. Julian had been a police officer in Juarez, but in the U.S., he worked as a laborer with the railroad. He was unfortunately an abusive parent who beat both his children and his wife. He also sometimes had fits of anger when he would injure himself, once hitting himself in the head with a hammer until he bled. Yikes. Yeah. In 1959, while pregnant with Richard, Mercedes was mixing chemicals and pigments at the Tony La Maiz boot factory without the benefit of ventilation or masks. Mercedes was reportedly very sick during her pregnancy, most likely as a result of the toxic fumes she was breathing. Richard was reportedly a happy and normal child. However, he sustained multiple head injuries at an early age. At age two, a dresser fell on his head. And at five, He was knocked unconscious by a swing. He started experiencing epileptic seizures and was diagnosed with temporal lobe epilepsy. There's evidence that head injuries can cause lesions on the brain, which can increase the risk of criminal behavior. It's what's known as acquired sociopathy. There have been many studies conducted that showed that people who committed violent crimes had lesions in the moral decision-making network of the brain, which means an injury here increases the likelihood of criminal behavior. So when Ricky was eight years old, uh, his older brother was reportedly molested by a teacher, and the teacher would visit the Ramirez home while his parents were at work. Richard denies that he was ever molested, but it is very possible that he was. But by many accounts, the single most destructive influence in his life was his cousin Miguel, called Mike, a decorated Green Beret combat veteran just back from the Vietnam War. Richard claimed that when he was 12 years old, Miguel showed him a series of detailed photographs depicting him raping and killing Vietnamese women. Richard later said that he was sexually aroused by these photographs of the rape and the murder victim that Miguel showed him. The two liked to smoke marijuana together as Miguel told Ramirez about the torture and mutilation he had inflicted on several Vietnamese women. Miguel also taught Richard about jungle warfare, how to kill with stealth, how to shoot a gun, and how to wield a knife. And I, I was just thinking, oh, it's just my, it's just my cousin Miguel. Like he's just back from Vietnam, like no big deal. But like Miguel was like a fierce, decorated, very talented soldier. My understanding. He was a green beret. Yeah. 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 
One night when Richard was about 13, Miguel and his wife Jessie started arguing and Miguel shot Jessie in the head, killing her. Richard claimed that he was there when this happened. Miguel was found not guilty by reason of insanity and was placed in a mental institution. And after this incident, Richard began acting strangely. And it's no wonder. Yeah. Oh, (laughs) surprise, surprise. Uh, In high school, he became unfriendly towards his childhood friends and began hanging out with uh, the kids who were known to do drugs. Doing Doing drugs. drugs. Uh, He became interested in heavy metal and Satanism. He began wandering the neighborhood at night and peeping into windows. We talked about like voyeurism last week and how like it's just too bad he didn't have the Internet to like, you know, (laughs) like in a a safe way, do his thing without hurting people. But uh, he started sleeping in a cemetery and praying to the devil. Later, he said that being brought up as a Catholic, he became fascinated with the devil and he saw uh, as having all of the power. Dropping out of school in the ninth grade, he began working at a Holiday Inn. He had access to a master key and would hide in rooms to watch women. One day he attacked a woman and was in the process of raping her when her husband came back to the room. The husband beat the crap out of him. Mm -hmm. Ramirez was arrested, but the couple was from out of town. They left and they refused to come back to El Paso. So the charges were dropped. Ramirez was released, and it was his belief that Satan had saved him. Miguel was released from the Texas State Mental Institution in 1977 after serving just four years, and the two began hanging out again. They would get high and talk about violent sex. Sometime after Ramirez turned 18, he moved to California, where he soon became an alcoholic and cocaine addict, and his addiction got worse and worse and worse. Um, He also smoked PCP, which I've heard literally makes people kill other people just saying they don't talk about it much nowadays but back in the 80s uh there was a lot of talk about pcp and how it would make people go crazy it was kind of like the what's that stuff that people smoke that makes them like eat people oh that's yeah <laughs> let me school you on the drugs man <laughs> bath salts uh and bath by salts, the, I, yeah. I i know that like there was footage of a naked man biting somebody's face but uh i think that the story was blown up to be more severe than it actually was. There was one case where uh, somebody's face was pretty messed up. Oh, really? I, I thought yeah. it was. I thought it was later proved to be fake, but like, I don't know anything. So, um, also, <laughs> um, <laughs> I heard a podcast a long time ago about um, people just people telling stories, and this one girl talked about how she and her boyfriend were sleeping in their home peacefully and soundly and a black guy walked in and he like messed around with them like kind of sexually and she snuck a call to the police and the police later told her that dude was on PCP he was gonna oh, wow. kill you he was gonna kill you guys and then that's I think that's where I got that from but I also uh, one of my favorite shows is Intervention <laughs> I just love watching. <laughs> I, I mean, no, I I uh, have an appreciation for mental illness and addiction. I talked to my therapist today, actually, and I do take Zoloft. Woo, woo, woo. Um, but I was just thinking that I enjoy the show because I like to, I don't know, I just think it's really interesting and fascinating. But um, the people who are on PCP, who are on intervention are wacko. 
I mean, fucking nuts. Yeah. So they're, they're, they're just far gone. Like I know that um, advanced alcoholism like makes your brain, you are delusional, you know, advanced uh, cocaine um, addiction. Uh, just, it, it just fucks with your, your mind and your yeah. reason, reasonability and judgment and PCP yeah, does sure. not help. No. <laughs> So <laughs> now <laughs> we are going to dive into the timeline. Beth, what do you got? Ramirez lived in San Francisco for a time, and it's been reported that he, quote, visited a coven of devil worshipers, unquote. Hmm. It was actually probably the Church of Satan headed by Anton LaVey, which is headquartered in San Francisco. Friend of yours? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> No. <laughs> Every time I see racist people on TV, I, I, I talk to old Whitey. I'm like, friend of yours? Is that a friend of yours? <laughs> Do you know? Did you guys go to high school together? <laughs> it makes me really mad. <laughs> Just makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but Ramirez decided that the group was not for him and he did not join it. It's been reported that he thought he was better than them and that Satan favored him more than others, though it probably had more to do with their beliefs not aligning with his own because they don't actually believe in the devil as an entity who actually exists. Believe it or not, LaVey did not encourage the worship of Satan as a deity. Take it away, Beth. Let's get into it. <laughs> Satanism. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the Church of Satan views Satan as symbolic, representing the positive aspects of pride, individualism, and enlightenment, and also as a symbol of defiance against the faiths which LaVey criticized for what he saw as suppression of humanity's natural instincts. His beliefs align probably more closely to Ayn Rand's, who... Um, I kind of think is repugnant, but uh, that's a tangent for another day. I'm not familiar who Ayn Rand is. Is it a white person we should be concerned about? It's a white lady. She wrote some books back in the day. She's dead now. But, um, oh. well, she believes in individualism and capitalism and the positive aspects of things like greed. You know, the, the saying greed oh. is good. That's I have never heard such a thing in all Ayn of my Rand. life. I'm sorry. Really? Oh. You never nope. heard that? Greed no, is good. No, black people don't talk about how greed is good. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Ayn Rand's, uh, oh, okay. Um, I, I've never, I've never heard of that person. I don't like her. Okay. Well, it sounds like it's totally reasonable to not like that. Yeah. I was listening to a podcast about her and, and they talked about how she was Russian and uh, she left Russia when the communists took over and they lost everything. And I think that had a lot to do why she came oh. up with her philosophy. Positions. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. I see. I see. Yeah. I don't want to get into it too much, but yeah, I don't like her. Okay. Well, uh, I... I'll just side with you on this one. Okay. You got it. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Boo. You, you're welcome. <laughs> Shout out to all the sisters supporting each other. Okay. So they, um, they regard the word quote unquote Satan as a quote model or mo mode of behavior, end quote, noting that in Hebrew, the word means adversary or opposer, which can be regarded as one who questions. They are basically atheists taking the view that the universe is indifferent 
that there is no God and no devil. This is probably quite the disappointment to Ramirez, who did believe in the devil himself. Uh, to research this case, I found that um, Satanists look at uh, Lucifer as just an angel who was like, you know what, guys? I just don't see things the way that you do. So I'm a bounce and do my own thing. <laughs> Ramirez's first known murder is that of a nine-year-old girl, May Linda Lung, who was found hanging over a pipe in the basement of her apartment building in San Francisco on April 10th, 1984. She'd been raped, stabbed, and strangled to death. He was not linked to this murder until 2009 when DNA evidence collected from the basement where she was found was positively matched to Ramirez. Ramirez moved to Los Angeles where he lived in the uh, Cecil Hotel for a time. Very famous hotel, has quite the reputation. It was built in 1927 in the Booz Arts style and was considered grand at the time. With an opulent marble lobby, stained glass windows and alabaster statuary, I don't know what alabaster is. Alabaster is a white stone. Okay, yeah, sure. Sounds good. The statues that are all white. Oh, that's alabaster. Yeah. Okay. All right. Alabaster. It sounds like a little bastard. <laughs> I'm going to name my <laughs> next dog alabaster. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But the Great Depression hit soon afterwards, and the hotel went into a decline. The area was located in what became L.A.'s Skid Row area, populated by now um, transients. And by the way, it's a crisis, so don't hate on those people who are just out there trying to survive. Yeah. The first documented suicide in the Cecil Hotel occurred in 1931. There were many others that followed, and some people started calling the Cecil the suicide. Ooh. In addition to suicides, the Cecil's history includes other kinds of violence and salacious happenings. In 1937, a woman fell from the ninth story, her body tangled in telephone wires. Police were unable to determine whether it was a suicide, an accident, or a murder. Oh, me, oh, my. Elizabeth Short, the Black Dahlia, is rumored to have spent time at the bar in the Cecil prior to her murder. In 1964, a woman was murdered in the room at the Cecil. Ramirez stayed there, but also another serial killer named Jack Unterweger, uh, who murdered women during his stay at the Cecil in 1991. By the way, Cecil's my dog's name. Oh, yeah, that's right. In 2013, Canadian student Elisa Lamb disappeared during her stay at the Cecil. Her body was later found in a water cistern on the roof of the hotel. In surveillance video before her death, she can be seen talking to someone who either isn't there or is out of the shot. The video went viral, and you can Google it if you want to see it. Mm -hmm. And although police ruled her death as accidental, to many, it's still a mystery that has never been solved. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what to say about that one. Yeah, and I I have seen the video, and it's pretty weird. It is weird. But then I also heard about like a game that young kids play to like get on surveillance video and pretend like they're talking to somebody and then calamity ensues afterwards. And then, and then so people are forced to go back to the, the video and like figure out what happened, what happened, what happened. See yeah. But, it's, it, but, yeah. It, but yeah. So I guess one of the theories is that she was playing a game that went horribly wrong. Another one is that she did have bipolar disorder and uh, they thought she might've had a psychotic break. Oh, well, all of these things don't seem impossible. No, so. but we will never know. 
We will never know. Uh, in short, the Cecil Hotel has been named the most haunted hotel in Los Angeles, and it's been called Serial Killer Central by some. It was actually the inspiration for the hotel in season five of American Horror Story. I'm trying to think back to. I tried to watch it. It was I couldn't. There was just too much sexual assault in that one. Oh, it was it really was horrible. Yeah, I, I couldn't. Oh, could not. Couldn't even. Oh. <laughs> oh my! I yeah. I love American Horror Story. I like the first one. Don't get me started about <laughs> Jessica Lange. Oh yeah, she's awesome. Oh, don't get me started <laughs> about all the glorious things that is Jessica Lange. And I just love horror. Um, so as a black person in the United States, I am scared all the time, and I really appreciate like manufactured horror. So I love horror movies. I love a good haunted house. The kind where I know I'm not going to get killed by anybody. It's just fun for like the 30 to 60 minutes that I'm involved in it. I I just, I just love it. I love roller coasters. I love manufactured fear. Right. (laughs) Not the real kind. Not the real stuff. (laughs) I feel that every Every second of every day. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So back to the Cecil. Oh, yeah. One account that I found online. A woman tells a story about her father's experience at the hotel that's been part of their family lore for years. Her father would tell the story that he went to sleep one night in his hotel room, only to awaken to the feeling that he was being choked. (gasps) He felt hands around his throat, but couldn't see anyone, and he thought he was going to die. Finally, the feeling left him, and he bolted out of the room and ran downstairs to the front desk. After he gasped for breath, He told the hotel clerk what had happened. The clerk told him that someone had been murdered in that room. Mm. And it was only years later when the woman who told the story on her blog that she was looking through documents and she discovered that this happened at the Cecil Hotel. When she found it listed as a former address for her father and she asked him about it. So he'd been telling this story for years and years and years, but she didn't know it was the Cecil. And then she found out later. So is the Cecil Hotel a hotel now or is it a museum? It's a hotel. Um, it's it's called something else. I want to say it's something like on Main or stay on Main. I think that's what it's called. Oh, okay. so it, it's not called the Cecil anymore, but you can go and stay there if you want to. OK, live show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, so back to Ramirez. On June 28, 1984, 79 year old Jenny Vincow was found dead in her bedroom, having been stabbed multiple times and her throat slashed. She had most likely been raped. Police found a fingerprint on the window screen, but in 1984, there was no you know, automated fingerprint database and they could not identify the perpetrator. Nine months later, on March 17, 1985, Maria Hernandez drove her car into the garage and Ramirez came into the garage after her before the door could close. When she got out of her car and went to unlock the inner door to her condo, she heard a sound behind her and turned to see a man pointing a gun at her. That's my worst nightmare is somebody slipping in. You know, because the yeah, garage doors are scary. slow. And if yeah. anybody wants to, like, fuck with you, they, they can. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Maria reflectively put her hands in front of her face. Ramirez shot at her head, but the bullet was deflected by the keys in her hand and she fell down and played dead. Ramirez shoved her aside and entered the home. 
where he found Maria's roommate, Dale Okazaki, who he shot dead. He then fled. Maria survived and was able to describe her assailant, a tall, thin Latinx man. And a 22 caliber bullet was retrieved from Ozaki's skull. The very same evening, about an hour later, Ramirez was driving a stolen car and followed Sai Lian, also known as Veronica Yu, off the freeway in Monterey Park. He forced her off the road, and when she stopped, he tried to pull her out of her car through the window. Jesus. And then he shot her twice in the chest. Veronica was found by police, still breathing, but she later died in the ambulance en route to the hospital. 22 caliber bullets were retrieved, and ballistics showed that the two crime scenes were related. These murders caused a media frenzy, and the murderer was dubbed the Valley Intruder and the Walk-In Killer by the press. Just 10 days later, on March 27th, Ramirez broke into the home of Vincent and Maxine Zazara in Whittier through the laundry room window. He shot 64-year-old Vincent in the head as he lay sleeping on the couch. He then attacked 44-year-old Maxine. Maxine tried to shoot Ramirez with a shotgun, but was unable to. Ramirez was so incensed by this, and you'll find that people who fought back were uh, treated they got worse, the, the yeah. worst of it. Yeah. So yeah. incensed by this that after shooting and stabbing her to her death, he gouged out her eyeballs. Yes, both of them. Her eyes mm. were never found. Shoe prints were found in the dirt outside the house and on the top of the overturned pail that the killer used to get into the window. 22 caliber bullets were retrieved. On May 9, 1985, an intruder entered a house in Monrovia through a kitchen window. A shoe print was recovered from the kitchen sink near the window, and a palm print was found on the sink. Then on May 14, 1985, a police dispatcher received a 911 call from a residence in Monterey Park. When emergency personnel arrived, they found 65-year-old William Doy, who had been shot in the head with a 22 caliber bullet. He died shortly after help arrived. His invalid wife, Lillian Doy, had been restrained with thumb cuffs, beaten and raped, but she was not killed. And Lillian was able to describe her attacker, a tall, thin, again, Latinx man with bad teeth, long hair, dressed in all black. Another shoe print was found in the dirt outside. Police investigated the shoe print, which was the same as the prints left at the other crime scenes, and discovered that it was from a new brand of shoe, Avia, and this particular shoe had a patented sole. Only one pair of shoes in that pattern and size had been sold in the L.A. area, but the person who bought them had bought them with cash, so police were thwarted. Oh, shit. Yeah. That is terrible. On May 30th in Monrovia, by the way, Monrovia is like a nice ass part of L.A. Is it? Uh-huh. I uh-huh. I had a, a friend in college who um, was from there. Uh, shout out to you, Aaliyah. And um, she lived in the biggest house I think I'd ever been to in my life wow. at the time. And they had a telephone in the bathroom. Wow. It was crazy. Fancy. And... Today's episode is brought to you by Best Fiends. It was a night like any other. We'd just finished a live show of the podcast at Madison Square Garden. It was nice to see Megan and Harry. You know, so nice of them to come. And then we told the pilot, hey, gas up the PJ. We out of here. Wait, gas up the PJ? Megan and Harry? Shh, shh, shh. 
Just go with it, okay? Okay, okay. So, Wendy, we gassed up the PJ, and then what? Well, <laughs> while we were on the PJ, that's private jet for regular folks. I was wondering. We, we were up in the clouds, scoring some quality time with Best Fiends. It was incredible. And the good news is, I'm on level 393. Right on. <laughs> yes, it sounds incredible. But if mm-hmm. your head's in the clouds like Wendy, in an imaginary <laughs> private jet with Megan and Harry, or your feet are firmly planted on the ground at work or in line at the grocery store. One thing is true. Best Fiends is just plain fun. Mm, It is true. Now, Best Fiends is a free to download mobile puzzle game with thousands of exciting levels for new adventures and challenges every time you play. There are dozens of unique fiends to collect so you can customize your team of fiends to defeat the menacing slugs. I'm sorry. I was just looking at this funny text from Harry. Anyway, power up your favorite fiends to new levels for even more powerful skills and watch them transform as they get stronger. With offline play, Wendy's favorite, you'll Mm -hmm. never be stranded without fun, even if you lose your internet connection. Download your favorite getaway, Best Fiends, for free today on the App Store or Google Play. You'll even get $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life, so it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps, but there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit Loops HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp, and especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, Mm -hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And uh, now I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash fruit. That's betterhelp.com slash fruit. They had real orange juice. I mean, it was, it was the <laughs> it was fanciest wild. place. No Sunny D. <laughs> no Sunny D. Are you kidding me? It was crazy. Real ass orange juice. <laughs> and a phone in the bathroom. So on... um. Back to the story, sorry. On May 30th in Monrovia, 84-year-old Mabel Bell and her disabled sister Florence, Nettie Lang, who was 81 years old, were attacked. Mabel was bludgeoned with a hammer and she had injuries on her body caused by burns. Florence had been raped and left for dead. Her wrists had been bound using an electric cord and her ankles were taped together. She had a puncture wound in her head two black eyes and a bruised face. The perpetrator drew a pentagram in lipstick on Florence's inner thigh and another on her bedroom wall. Florence was taken to the hospital and later regained consciousness, but police were unable to communicate with her. Mabel was taken to the hospital comatose and she never regained consciousness. She died from her injuries about a month later in July of 1985. And here we should note that in some articles, these victims are referred to with different names names. Uh, But the names that we use are from court documents, and we don't know why other names were used. It could be um, 
the articles were protecting their anonymity at the time. and Or mm-hmm. it could be, um, there was another story that we did where uh, a book was written about the, the subject and the person who wrote the book changed the names and then news articles started using those names. So it's mm. kind of crazy. But, it is. Um, yeah. But I'm glad we noticed it because we, we work on the doc throughout the week. And I was like inserting like the research that I found and I was like what the fuck is Beth covering a completely different case (laughs) and I was I was thinking oh wow there's there's even more victims (laughs) (laughs) yeah no but yeah there's the the names the names differ but um with the with the timeline and dates we were able to yeah when I went through the court Mm -hmm. document when I looked at the dates I was able to figure out what the the correct names were yes Great work. Shout out to Beth. Yeah. <laughs> so found at the crime scene was a partial shoe print from an Avia sneaker. Um, speaking of sneakers, so my husband is a sneaker head and has hundreds of pairs of sneakers and goes to sneaker conventions and stuff like that. And I was listening to Neil Brennan um, on his new podcast, How Do You Feel? And he was talking about how dudes always wear sneakers out in public. Because they're always afraid that they're going to have to like run away and fight. Or yeah. I was like, oh, my husband hasn't said that. I didn't know that that was a thing. Oh, okay. Um, uh, did you ever hear? I think it was Eddie Murphy who uh, joked about the ghetto mall. No, what's at the ghetto mall? <laughs> he said all they have is shoe stores and baby clothes. Like all <laughs> all poor people do is. <laughs> Is fucking run around. <laughs> That's a good joke. That's a good joke. Still, still, still um, applies to current times. <laughs> what else are we going to do? Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's really, really funny. Um, so on May 31st, the very next day, Ramirez broke into the home of 41-year-old Carol Kyle through a doggy door. Again, Her name is different in some articles, um, but the date is key, May 31st. Uh, She woke to find a man standing over her bed, worst nightmare, holding a gun and shining a flashlight in her eyes. Ramirez handcuffed Carol's 12-year-old son and put him in a closet. He then took Carol to her bedroom, put the gun to her head, and raped and sodomized her. He then brought her son from the closet and handcuffed the two together to the bed. The man said, I don't know why I'm letting you live. I've killed before. He threatened to have a friend come back and kill her if she went to the police. He then left and they did call the police. Carol described her attacker as a light-skinned Latinx man with demonic eyes dressed all in black. Yeah, look at pictures. Google Google him. Yeah. Uh, she's not wrong in her description. Also, um, I've killed people before is not something to include on any kind of resume. <laughs> Over the over the next few weeks, his murder rate escalated, claiming another dozen victims in a frenzy of burglary, assault, and brutal violence, complete with satanic symbols. The Los Angeles Police Department responded by putting together a dedicated task force. You know how great they are. With the FBI stepping in to assist, he began to be referred to in articles that were published thereafter as the Night Stalker. On the morning of July 2nd, 1985, Mary Cannon, a widow in her 80s, was found dead in her home in Arcadia. She had been strangled, beaten, and stabbed in the neck. Police found shoe prints from an Avia sneaker. 
And then on July 5th, 16-year-old Whitney Bennett was beaten with a tire iron in her room while she slept. Her cheek, jaw, skull, and arm were fractured, and she had been strangled, resulting in a fractured larynx. She was barely recognizable, but she survived, and a shoe print was found on her comforter that matched the others. So I just wanted to point out that he is killing all these people in these different cities, um, mm-hmm. and one of the detectives was, the, and the documentary that I, I saw was, um, describing that it was really easy because LA is is um, a sprawling place and the freeways connect everything. So it was easy for him to get from city to city, you know, with no problem. Also, right. Arcadia, Whittier, Monrovia, those are all like, it's weird to me because they're really like wh- white kind of affluent areas. Upscale, so, yeah. Yeah. So the fact that nobody spotted this guy and was like, 911, there's a brown person in my neighborhood. <laughs> Well, he was breaking into their homes in the middle of the night, so um, he was probably sneaking around. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, using the cover of darkness and wearing black. But um, it's just it's just strange to me that no nosy white person was like, that looks weird. There's a a brown Um, person in our neighborhood. Yeah, there's a brown person here. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, sometimes racism can save the day, but it didn't in this case. On July 7th, 1985, Joyce Nelson, who was 60, was murdered. She had multiple bruises, lacerations, and contusions to her face. Ramirez had literally stomped on her head, and a shoe print was found on her head and outside of her window. At about 3.30 a.m. that same morning, a man raped and sodomized 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. Uh, He took several items of jewelry and some money, handcuffed her to the bed, and then fled. On the morning of July 19, 1985, the bodies of Maxon and Leela Needing were found dead. Their throats had been slashed and they had been shot in the neck and the head. A 22 caliber bullet was recovered and ballistics showed that it was from the same gun that fired the bullets that killed Dale Okazaki and Veronica Yu. The next day, shortly after midnight on July 20th, 1985, Ramirez broke into the home of China Rong and Somkid Kovananth. Uh, he shot and killed the husband, Chena Rong, and raped, sodomized, and beat Somkid. Ramirez tied up her eight-year-old son and hit him. Oh, poor baby. Uh, police found the print from an Avia sneaker on the porch and inside the house. A bullet recovered from uh, China Rong's body matched those that killed the Zaza Ras. On August 6, 1985, Ramirez broke into the home of Christopher Peterson, 38, and his wife, Virginia, 27. He shot Virginia in the face and Christopher in the temple. Christopher did not lose consciousness, however, and he chased Ramirez out of the house. Wow. He then drove his wife to the hospital. With a bullet in the head? With a bullet in his head. Virginia had been shot on the side of her nose, and the bullet passed through her head near her eye. The bullet that hit Christopher's temple had deflected downward and lodged in his neck. Both of them survived the attack. Excuse me, my jaw is on the floor. (laughs) Shout out to Christopher. Yeah! Woo woo! Burr, 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 burr! Uh, on August 8th, 1985, in Diamond Bar, Ramirez killed Elias Avila and raped his wife, Sakina, while their three-year-old slept. He beat Sakina and forced her to swear upon Satan, 
Mm, yeah, sure. That she would not <laughs> scream. When her three-year-old son woke, Ramirez bound his hands and feet and covered his head with pillows. He handcuffed Sakina to a doorknob, threatening to return and kill her, her three-year-old son and her infant child if she called the police. Ramirez left the L.A. area that August and traveled north to San Francisco, where he took two more victims, Peter and Barbara Pan, on August 18th. On the walls, he scrawled pentagrams and, quote, Jack the Knife, unquote. Like the song? Yeah, in lipstick. We're making a wreck, <laughs> a wreck of Jack the Knife. That's pretty, uh, pretty random. <laughs> Very much so. Um, I wonder if he played music like while he was doing. That's very uh, American Psycho. <laughs> um, I couldn't get through that movie. It was just too much snow. <laughs> it was, yeah, too much snow, too much whiteness, too much wealth. <laughs> couldn't get into it. I've tried several times to watch it, but I just can't. Uh, Police were able to connect this crime to the series of crimes happening in L.A. San Francisco Mayor Dianne Feinstein, what's up, DiFi, gave a speech to reassure citizens that police were on the trail of the killer, citing all the evidence police had gathered, including the information about the obvious sneaker. And this enraged L.A. police because... That information had been kept secret. Uh Uh-oh. And just as police feared he would do, Ramirez, after hearing her speech, threw the shoes over the Golden Gate Bridge and then returned to L.A. So no more Avia sneakers. Oh, no. L.A. Are you pressed? Are you (laughs) mad? Are you upset? Are you sad? Come here, bitch. Let me give you a hug. Because you act like nobody shows you love. That's me watching too much TikTok. Sorry. I just got out of control. Please forgive me. On August 24th, 1985, Ramirez shot 29-year-old Bill Carnes in the head and then raped his 27-year-old fiance, Inez Erickson, in their home. He actually identified himself to Inez as the Night Stalker and forced her to swear her love for Satan as well. Inez was able to provide a detailed description of her assailant and bullets removed from Bill's body matched the others. And Bill miraculously survived. And I um, wanted to also just note, um, I've watched interviews of some of these survivors and Richard Ramirez. um, I know he's an infamous killer and he's got a big body count, but he also left a lot of people in his wake. He did. Yeah. These people's families, these people's partners, children, um, even the people who survived, um, who suffered, um, you know, his. I can't even imagine. At his hands. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah, we joke on Fruit Loops a lot, but we do definitely have an appreciation for the people who. are gone and but also the people who are still still yeah, here who survived um, yeah. who survived who are dealing with um the the pain we are now going to get into the part of our show where we talk about the investigation and the arrest the same night of the attack on bill and inez in the same neighborhood teenager james romero the third noticed an orange toyota drive by with its lights off When it drove by a second time, the boy took note of the license plate. So, hip-hop air horns to you. Okay, here it goes. All right. The car was later found and a fingerprint was recovered from the rearview mirror. Ramirez was finally identified through that print after matching it to an arrest record. 
I will say most of these serial killers, especially like in the 70s and 80s, were allowed to kill for super long times. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, well, there was no DNA. And there was, yeah, know, right, right, right. The fingerprints were harder to match. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Comparatively, though, his spree was not as long as some of the other ones that we've covered during that time frame. Um, Also, I'm just in love with Neil Brennan. He doesn't think that there are any black serial killers. That's because he hasn't listened to Fruit Loops. But uh, he was like, there's no black serial killers because if a black person killed somebody, they would be in jail the next day. I just thought that was so funny. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, in the meantime, Ramirez had taken a Greyhound bus to Arizona. Some accounts say he visited his brother in Tucson. Others say he went to Phoenix to buy drugs. In any case, you can do Phoenix and Tucson one day. I do it all the time. In any case, (laughs) while he was there on August 31st, TV and print media had released his mugshot, along with a series of clues from witnesses and survivors, and his image was plastered all over Los Angeles. That kind of freaked me out when I read that because I was in Phoenix in uh, 1985. So that freaked me out a little oh, bit. Oh, me, oh my. Did you, do you recall seeing photos or hearing about him? Uh, like just the Night Stalker, but I don't remember contemporaneously this happening. Mm. It, it might not have gotten on the national news yet. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But it, it just reading this uh, and realizing that he was in Arizona the same time I was there. And even though you were you know, like, ooh, a little too close for comfort, right? Yeah, <laughs> even though it was 30-some years ago, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I get it. I get it. Now, were you in Phoenix proper or were you in one of the white suburbs? I was living in Mesa, so. Okay. Okay. Not in Phoenix proper. Okay. We don't know exactly where in the valley he went, but anyway. No, we don't. He might he might not he might have skipped Phoenix and went just to Tucson, but anyway, mm-hmm. freak me out. <laughs> <laughs> Are you gonna be all right? I'll be all right. It's gonna be okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> when Ramirez returned from Arizona, he was spotted leaving the bus station. A woman cried out, El Matador, El Matador, the killer, the killer. Ramirez attempted to get on a bus, but he was recognized and was chased off. He then tried to run away and steal a car, but he was chased by a mob. Forty police cars and seven helicopters converged on the scene, and he had the shit beat out of him by the mob before the police could intervene. I just think that that is awesome. Like, it's like epic. The, the community came together. Right. It's it's like justice, uh, and I'm punching my yes. fist in the air. Justice. <laughs> One of the coolest captures I've ever heard of. Yep. Agreed. Agreed. So at the police station, Ramirez spontaneously confessed. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. How we care for our minds affects how we experience life. So it's important to invest time and care into keeping them healthy. There are plenty of ways to support a healthy brain, like learning a new language or taking power naps. But there's also BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we are huge advocates for mental health here at Fruit Loops HQ. Oh, yes. And we have both used therapy throughout our lives, including BetterHelp. And especially in these past several years to help us deal with challenging times, Mm -hmm. challenging thoughts, feelings and experiences. Amen. Yes. And now. 
Now, I had a recent, you know, conversation with my therapist. She was saying, sometimes it's just good to talk and get some perspective. You don't yeah. have to go to a therapist just because stuff is wrong. So Right, right. And BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat only therapy sessions. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And some people get really anxious about that. So Oh, yes. And it is much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Our listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash fruit. That's BetterHelp.com slash fruit. I want the electric chair. They should have shot me on the street. I did it. You know, you guys got me. The stalker. Hey, I want a gun to play Russian roulette. I'd rather die than spend the rest of my life in prison. Can you imagine? The people caught me, not the police. He then laughed and added, you think I'm crazy? But you don't know Satan. He then hummed the song, Night Prowler by the band ACDC, which I am not familiar with. Can you sing me a tune? I'm not sure which one that one is. I used to listen to ACDC back in the day, but um, I don't remember anything but like it's, Back in Black. It's AC- <laughs> back in Black. Yeah. Yeah, so it's the white guys who scream funny. Yes, yeah. That's ACDC. That's ACDC. Well, there's a lot of them, you know, but that's one of them. There is a whole collective of white guys who scream ridiculously. In the 80s, yeah. And have millions of dollars on it. Doing so, yes. Anyway, so now we're going to these days. So now we are going to dive into the trial. Take us there, Beth. Ramirez was charged with 14 murders and 30 other felony accounts. During his arraignment in October of 1985, he turned to the media and raised his hand, revealing a pentagram that he had drawn on his palm. From the beginning, Ramirez showed no remorse. In court, he enjoyed looking at the photos. He would laugh, turn around and sneer at victims and their families. He had outbursts and shouted obscenities at the judge and the jury. So he really was like wiling out. I mean, yeah. uh, just he was he was mad, a nut disrespectful. Job. Yeah. yeah. Um, because of the, the geographical spread of the crimes complicated the scope of the trial with jurisdictional issues, some of the charges against Ramirez were dropped in order to expedite the trial. But even so, the trial did not begin until January 1989. During this time, Ramirez attracted a cult-like following of supporters, many of whom were black-clad Satan worshippers. Ramirez often dressed in black along with dark shades for his courtroom appearances, which... You can't wear sunglasses in court. He did. He did. Yeah, there's. You can watch the videos. Yeah. Uh, oh, I've seen it. I've seen it. I've, so I've gross. consumed <laughs> his interviews and and trial appearances, and I I've never seen anything like it. So. Yeah. Yeah. A delay occurred when one juror was found murdered on August fourteenth, nineteen eighty nine. But rumors that Ramirez had orchestrated her death proved unfounded. And on September 20th, 1989, after 55 days of testimony, the jury finally returned a unanimous guilty verdict on 43 charges, including 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 sexual assault charges, and 14 burglary charges. 
Well, there you go. Two weeks later, the same jury recommended the death sentence on 19 counts. Now, um, I just wanted to point out for people who are not from California or um, in different parts of the world, because we do have worldwide listenership. Hello. (laughs) Um, In some states in the United States, the jury can give the sentence after the conviction. And in other states, the judge does it. So in California. At this time, the jury was the one who had the power to do that. Leaving the courtroom, Ramirez responded, hey, big deal. Death always went with the territory. I'll see you in Disneyland. The convicted murderer was formally sentenced to death in the gas chamber on November 7th, 1989, and was sent to San Quentin Prison in California. So now we're going to get into where are they now? Go ahead, Beth. Ramirez spent the remainder of his days at California's San Quentin Prison. And shout out to the podcast Ear Hustle, which has given us a glimpse into the lives and humanity of the incarcerated people there, as well as the inhumanity of the justice system and prison system in the United States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Ramirez captivated the media and adoring women. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Women would visit him in prison and fight with each other for his attention, which I don't get at all. I don't either. But it turns out that this is a thing with with famous criminals who get locked yeah, up and, and end it. up developing adoring fans. It mostly happens with men. But I was listening to a podcast about Eileen Warnos recently and uh she had adoring fans in prison. Really? Um, wow. Yeah, it happens with women, too. I know Jodi Arias does. Oh, well, I mean, she's really pretty and stuff, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and she did something really wild. <laughs> Some women find Ramirez uh, sexy, which I don't I don't get. I think he's gross, but you're not feeling um, it. Not feeling it, and not at all. No, no, no. no. Uh, he's, he's not my type. Creepy and gross and crazy. Yeah, <laughs> not into it. <laughs> <laughs> it it doesn't turn your crank. No, nope, uh, yeah, no. It. But give me a give me a white guy who knows how to dance and play basketball. Woo, woo, woo! I'm out of here, old whitey. <laughs> so uh, while incarcerated, Ramirez married one of his supporters, a 41 year old woman named Doreen Leoy, in 1996. And fun fact: when he was incarcerated in the 1980s, he was imprisoned with Todd Bridges, the actor. I only know Jeff Bridges. Todd Bridges is his older brother. No, Todd Bridges is the black kid who was on Different Strokes. What? Yeah, the older kid. I was thinking it was Jeff Bridges' brother. No. Man, oh man. Well, uh, you don't have to cut that out. That's just me not knowing uh, old actors. Uh, and Sean Penn. So he was locked up with Tyler and Sean Penn. Yeah. And after nearly 24 years on death row, Richard Ramirez ended up dying on June 7th, 2013, at the age of 53 from complications related to um, B cell lymphoma. I saw one source say that uh, the cause of death was liver failure, and another said hepatitis C caused the liver failure. But whatever, he did. Yeah, he's dead. So now we are going to get into what may him or her snap as well as our takeaways so i got this the head injuries i think did not help and also i think being first generation american when your parents are immigrants and don't understand anything about american like life can be a challenge 
I know from experience. Also, poverty, <laughs> poor education, um, witnessing uh, that murder when he was a teenager and being shown those photos of tor- tortured Vietnamese women probably contributed to him being the most fucked up. I think that that's the worst one. And I wonder yeah. if he had antisocial personality disorder, which I, I know nothing so. about. Yeah. But I know a lot of serial killers have it. And also, I noticed that he never hurt young boys. Remember, he left that three-year-old boy. I mean, he hit him, but he didn't like kill him. Or mutilate him. And then there, there was that right. 12-year-old kid who locked in the closet and he left totally untouched. And I was just wondering if um, something happened to him when he was a child, other than the abuse from his father, that uh, my theory is that perhaps he saw himself in these young boys and, and just wasn't capable of hurting them, which is a weird... Yeah, it is. It. And there was the allegation that he may have been sexually assaulted by a teacher. Um, so that mm-hmm. could be. Yeah. And I, I think, uh, like you said, being a first-generation American um, with immigrant parents who work all the time um, and they're, they're just barely getting by, mm-hmm. sometimes the kids are like, yeah, fuck this. I'm just going to do crime. <laughs> yeah. Know? Yeah. This work thing, this... Yeah. Yeah. American life that you told me it was going to be so great actually yeah. really sucks. <laughs> you work all the time and you you don't have anything. So fuck this. Yeah. So yeah. I don't yeah. know. That could have been a thing. I don't know. Um, could be. And if everything that he said happened actually happened, the photos and witnessing the murder of his cousin's wife, uh, that's pretty fucked up. And that would fuck anybody up in the head. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing. I don't believe 100 percent that those things happened. What? Yeah, I do believe that his cousin told him stories about raping and murdering Vietnamese women. And his cousin, he did murder his wife. But the other stuff, I'm not so sure about. Um, It could have happened, but Mm. it also could be something that Ramirez cooked up in his own head. Mm. Uh, Having dealt with someone that I suspect has antisocial personality disorder, my brother, Mm -hmm. pathological lying comes with the territory. Mm. Um, Sometimes the lies seem pointless. Other times they are created to spice up a story or to manipulate people and Mm. uh, get, get sympathy. Um, And I noticed, I paid attention to how the media reported these incidents, and uh, they reported them as if they actually happened, but they couched it in terms like Ramirez said. Mm. So I don't know if they actually happened. Nobody came up with these photographs. Nobody saw the photographs except for Ramirez. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think Ramirez is the only one who said that he was at the house when his cousin killed his wife. So I don't know if he was actually there. Mm. But I think the stories that his cousin told him were bad enough to to be talking to a 12-year-old kid about. I I don't think he needed the photos. You know, it was already Uh fucked up. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yes. I do agree with you that uh, the head injuries probably played a major role. Mm -hmm. And uh, as we talked about his drug usage, which, uh, as I've said before, will fuck someone up when they begin using drugs at a young age and and when they continue to to use drugs as an addict. Mm. Um, And the stories, like I said, the stories that his cousin told him about rape and murder was enough to fuck a kid Mm -hmm. up. And uh, he was just beginning to develop sexually at that age. He was 
12, 13 years old. And right. uh, he got his wires crossed. You know, he, he uh, mixed up sex with violence and, and that's what got him off. Mm-hmm. And then he was beaten by his father and possibly mm-hmm. sexually abused by a teacher. So there's all of those factors. And I yeah. think we can all agree that there was something basically wrong with this dude. <laughs> yeah. He was a walking fucked up soup. Yes, he was. And I think his wiring was haywire and uh, was probably a result of all of these things. Yeah. gonna get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) on the ones and twos (laughs) this segment is not intended to be victim blaming we thought of this segment because i read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer this is not meant to blame the victims it's just learning from other people's mistakes sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So I don't care how safe you think your house or hotel room is. It is not ever. Secure your home and make sure that all the doors and windows are locked all the time when you're in the house and when you're outside of the house, period. Yep. Lock every goddamn thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Fire ass tip. (laughs) There are some people who don't do that. I know. It's crazy. I think they're nuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, seriously. My So my husband's from Montana. People there don't lock their doors. My when um, I grew up in the Bay Area, but when we moved to Spokane, people didn't lock their doors. It was fucking crazy. crazy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So lock your goddamn doors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also, uh, since it's Halloween, happy Halloween, everybody. Here's a few Halloween yes. safety tips. Going to just you. go through them real quick. Add reflective tape or striping to costumes and trick-or-treat bags for greater visibility. And consider face paint instead of masks. No black face, though. No black face. If a sword, cane, or stick is part of your child's costume, make sure it's not sharp or long so they don't trip over it or hurt themselves with it. Make sure they're not black, too, so they don't get (laughs) shot by Review with your children how to call 911 or your local emergency number if they ever have an emergency or become lost. A parent or a responsible adult should always accompany young children while trick-or-treating. If your older children are going alone, plan and review the route that is acceptable to you. Agree on a specific time when they should return home. Give your kids flashlights to take with them. Review the rules with your kids before they go. Only go to homes with porch lights on and never enter a home, never enter a home or a car for a treat. Never. Pedestrian injuries are the most common injuries to children on Halloween. So remain on well-lit streets and always use the sidewalks. If no sidewalk is available, walk on the far edge of the roadway facing traffic. Only cross the street as a group and try to cross only at established crosswalks. Never cross between parked cars or out of driveways. 
Don't assume the right of way. Motorists may have trouble seeing the trick-or-treaters, so look both ways before crossing the street. At your home, remove anything from your porch and walkway that a child could trip over, such as garden hoses or toys. Make sure that any wet leaves are removed so nobody slips on them, and restrain any pets that might jump on the children. Thank you, fire-ass tips, Beth. Sure. So now we're going to dive into some serial killer and true crime news. And this is um, where we uh, talk about serial killer and true crime news. This is a white guy, though, but I thought it was an interesting nugget. Um, It's a white guy from Australia, and I saw it on Twitter. Um, Australia's most infamous serial killer, Ivan Milat, has died of cancer this year. Have you heard of him before? I have. I had not. He killed seven people, though, so... There you go. His killings are the stuff of nightmares. And Uh that's one case I only looked at briefly because his crimes are so horrific. Okay. Liking and subscribing. (laughs) He was known as the backpacker (laughs) killer. So if you guys want to look him up, just be forewarned. Uh, They're so horrific. I don't I I don't want to read about them. When you say horrific, um, are we talking Mm -hmm. like mutilation are we talking torture? Torture. Oh. Yeah. Okay. At least it, it, to me, it was it seemed like torture. Hmm. Yeah. Well, for Halloween, I will be treating myself to finding out what I'm going to I wanted to mention that there's a hotel that opened recently in Victor, Colorado, called the Black Monarch. It's supposed to be haunted, and it has, get this, a serial killer theme. It has what is described as a Victorian Gothic design aesthetic, and the rooms are themed after serial killers like Elizabeth Bathory and H.H. Holmes. Excuse me? According to the property's press release, the self-proclaimed horror hotel is packed with curiosities, taxidermy, oddities, and trinkets, giving alternative travelers myriad strange sights to explore. The owner plans to host live shows with a dark twist and special events featuring burlesque and circus performers. And I don't know how I feel about this. Well, I can tell you, I don't feel good. (laughs) <laughs> this mm-hmm. sounds crazy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So thank you, Beth. Now we are going to get into the <laughs> shout out. I don't even know what to say. The shout out yeah, portion of our show <laughs> where we shout out any content by people of color or about people of color or any true crime goodies. Um, so I wanted to shout out a mobile game for black people or people who love black people or who want to learn more about black people and black culture. And it is called Blebrity, spelled B-L-E-B-R-I-T-Y, Blebrity. And it was created by Jesse Williams, known for his character as Jackson Avery on Grey's Anatomy. But he's making a name for himself in the tech world. He's got also an app called Ebroji, and it's an emoji keyboard that you can download to your phone. And it's it's a reflection of how Black people talk. Oh, cool. But the Blebrity game, it's, you know that game that Ellen puts, Ellen plays it, but it's Ellen's version is the white lady version. And that's totally cool. But um, <laughs> she puts a tablet on her head and then you have to like guess what. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is just about right. black culture. So it's cool. It's oh, about cool. black music. There's a black movies. There's a free version. And there's also like a premium version. My broadcast has the free version and it's really, really fun. So now that it's like holiday time, more families coming around and stuff. You want to play a fun game, a fun new game? Download Blairbody. Uh, so very cool. Yeah. So Beth, where can the people find us? 
Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean Patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. We also have merch on our website now at fruitloopspod.com forward slash merch. And uh, Neil Brennan just slid into my DMs. I'm so excited. Oh. <laughs> I just told him that he was my favorite white guy. Um, and I love, I love his work. But anyway, uh, so this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there. Redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to the Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts, or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing Podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery 
and I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects.